Welcome to Stop, Hack, and Roll, a podcast about crunchy systems and crispy bacon. I'm James. And I'm Brandon. Today we'll be talking baking genre into games and which games may be easier or harder to hack. We'll also be responding to some feedback and encouraging you to reach out to us more. Uh, I finally, I finally played something. I don't actually have a, a really solid, like, real-world group to play games with, because you moved away. <laughs> because I moved away to my own different little group. Yeah. Uh, we played to, games, to too. Like, I'll talk about those later. Like, because you wanted to get an education and become Ugh. a doctor. and Gross. Life garbage. Um, but so we have this little online group that sometimes plays. And we play. We started our reoccurring campaign, or a reoccurring. We started a what will hopefully be a recurring campaign of Blades in the Dark, which I'm excited. That's that's one that I'm going to be in. I just wasn't able to be in the first session of it. Yeah, it's by John Harper. It's on Kickstarter. We're playing just an early quick start version of it, so I imagine that there will be more rules eventually, or that the rules will be a little smoother. There are already a lot of rules. And okay. if it gets any smoother and cleaner, it will be a very good game because it's already very well finished. Everything about it is pretty polished. It's very interesting. Everything about the system is very interesting. It feels well uh, thematically. It's like a it's like a Vlad Taltosh or Lies of Locke Lamora, something like that, right? It's pretty good. I, I the thing really the takeaway from it that it does really well is because it is it is a it is sort of a fantasy game, but it's urban fantasy. It's a little bit Ocean's Eleven, specifically in the way that the storytelling relates to time. Okay. And so you can get an extra die if you have done some prep work. And you can do the prep work retroactively. Yeah. And so you say, I'm doing this thing and here's the plan we had. Yeah, that's that is something that can be a lot of fun. A lot of times people get into that analysis paralysis where they're like how do we sneak this thing in? But if instead you jump directly into the action and flash back for it, yeah, I can see that working well. Yeah, so it's it's really good. It'll be the first time that I've done a an ongoing campaign of anything in a while, so that'll be fun. Yeah, I've been I've been doing a lot of one shots myself, which isn't a bad thing necessarily, but it's nice to be able to stick to a character for a while. Yeah, other than my online uh, play by post games. Yeah. Okay. So what else have you been playing? Uh, so I've got my ongoing play-by-post games that I'm doing. Um, but uh, in person, I played some Millennial Apartment Hunters, which is by James D'Amato of the One Shot Network. It is about being millennials searching for an apartment in a Kafka-esque hellscape that uh, means that the how much they want to pay and what they would like to get will never, ever, ever align. And it's delightful. It's very, it's very, very rules light, which we're going to be talking about a little bit more later. Um, but it's just a lot of fun. It's really sitting around making fun of the uh, uh, HGTV home shows and everything. It's a lot of, it's it's good stuff. It's a lot of fun. Uh, it's on my list of things to check out. And then I, I also actually played a round of Masks the New Generation by Brendan Conway. Okay. I am such a huge fan of this game. And we're going to be talking more about that later as well. And it was quite literally the saddest session of any game I've been in. And it was wonderful. And it was not what I was going for, but it was wonderful. Those people that you play with always seem to manage to play games 
that go entirely differently from anything that you and I play. We play Urban Shadows, and then you go off and play Urban Shadows with them, and tell me stories about what happened, and their games go off in totally different directions with different content. It's really interesting. Just yesterday, I got together and played with the other couple and a couple of their friends, who are all relatively new to role-playing games. Yeah, it's always fun to see people with different backgrounds coming at games from with different assumptions of what the game should be, what gaming is in general, what the specific genre they're playing is, that sort of thing. Yeah, it's also really cool to see people who are being introduced to indie games as some of their first games. Yeah. This is where I get just a little bit political. I grew up playing with the standard expected group of a bunch of white guys, um, with me being uh, a half Hispanic, half white, and kind of struggling a little bit with the idea of putting being Hispanic into my games. Uh, and so now coming to it as an adult and hopping into these indie games that push that kind of content and try to make a broader, more diverse world, I'm actually getting to see a lot of that with this new group. That we have another Latino player that sat down and said, hey, my character is Latino on game one. Yeah. And that was just so wonderful and exciting to me. I really enjoyed being able to see that. Hi, Felipe. So one of the things that I wanted to do today was I've, and I think we've both been starting to get some feedback from the, from people who have listened to the show. Yeah, it's been really exciting. That it has is. been my favorite thing about the show. If you want to talk to us, please contact us. We would love to hear from you. Yeah. Um, that's why we, that's why we always plug Twitter and email and stuff at the end of the podcast. Hashtag shilling. Yeah. I've been talking to my friend uh, from college about this. He brought up the fact that he is someone who who I played games with in college, but that was back when we were mostly playing Pathfinder or third edition. And mm-hmm. and he he's playing some Fate now, but he's not nearly as sort of submerged in the sort of indie game community as maybe you or I are. Um, and so, like, we, we kind of brushed past some stuff about Powered by the Apocalypse in the last episode. Um, mm-hmm. And he doesn't really know anything about that game. And so I started thinking about things that we sort of take for granted and maybe stepping back and trying to <laughs> yeah. explain them. Yeah, that absolutely makes sense. I mean... I don't know about you, James, but my podcatcher has, I think, over 40 podcasts now, and almost all of them are role-playing game podcasts, and one of them, no, no, two of them are Dungeons & Dragons podcasts, and the rest of them are something slightly indier than that. I have have fewer, but a much wider mix. Yeah, mine's almost all role-playing games. No, I have a lot of pot. I have a lot of other stuff: politics and economics and law and Gross. sports and okay, other stuff. I'm a well-rounded human being. I'm not. I'm. Uh, <laughs> I am very specialized. Yeah, my, so, my podcasts are role-playing games and psychology, and that's it. And the psychology podcasts are not good podcasts. What? So, one of, so one of the things that I was thinking that maybe we should do is in is sort of like you and I have built up over time uh, a sort of language we use to talk about games and right. maybe we should endeavor to do some podcasts about the language we use to discuss games and so that 
going forward with all of our podcast episodes, people will understand the things we talk about. That sounds great to me, and it makes a lot of sense. Um, I frequently have had to kind of pause with this new group that I've been playing a lot with and say, oh, when I say crunchy, it means this. Mm -hmm. To that point, specifically one of the things that you and I have talked about, and and I don't know if I've actually ever seen anyone refer to it like this, um, but you and I have talked a lot about games that have... Well, the best way to explain it will just be, I'll post the graph in the show notes. But I have a mental chart in my head when I start thinking about a game. And okay. On the on one axis, you have um, complexity. How complex are the rules? Right, so and that's specifically like, the mechanics of it. Yes, the mechanics. So nothing else, just like how many rules are there? So something like lasers and feelings is very low complexity because it has one mechanic. You roll one kind of die and pretty much do that for everything. Right. Something like GURPS is on the other end of that, where there's a mechanic for literally anything you could dream of. And then on the other axis is uh, what what we've kind of been, we're searching for a better word, but we've been calling it genre. Like how baked into the mechanics is genre? Specifically, we've been referring to genre bacon. Like it's genre a root text. in. Well, when we were using it as text, it looked very much like how baked in the genre is. But as yeah. soon as we started talking, we realized it was genre bacon. Genre bacon. And I it's love genre bacon. And I, I want genre bacon in all of my games, no matter what, three meals a day. And so you start getting things like Fate is a low complexity, low genre baked in game. For me, at least. That's what I would say. Well, Be let me... Do you mind if I pause you real quick? Sure. Just looking at some like some of the classic games. Monopoly is a game with a very low genre bacon. Um, oh, that's interesting. Rolling your dice, moving along right. the board, has nothing to do with commercialism, has nothing to do with running a business, anything like that. If you took away all of the things that showed that it was about capitalism, you couldn't tell it was about capitalism. Which, in fact... I think there are probably hundreds of versions of Monopoly that illustrate that point exactly. <laughs> exactly. And lack of genre bacon makes it really, really easy to reskin something. It means you can say, hey, look, now it's Nintendo characters. Mm -hmm. Or Serenity. Um, or, or whatever. Disney. Uh, let it go. Or Star Wars. Um, but a game like chess, which is about tactical warfare, the rules of the game encourage thinking of it in a tactical way that simulates tactical warfare yeah so even if you renamed all of the pieces if you said the pawn is now the little tiny round dude you're still queen, gonna yeah the pawn is whatever you rename it or whatever you redesign it as is still going to be a character who has limited mobility and who you basically sacrifice to put other um to put other pieces in better positions to take enemy pieces yeah and if you rename it and it's orcs and elves and dragons and whatever it still is a game that is about tactics if you rename it and it is white blood cells and red blood cells it's still a game about a tactical war going on yeah so chess i would say has high genre bacon yeah and with rpgs you get even more bacon which is in, and so both those games, I would say, chess is probably very complex, and Monopoly is also complex, but not 
nearly as complex. Well, I don't know about that. The only decisions that are made in Monopoly are whether you're going to buy a property or not. A lot of that could be um, automated. I think it's actually not a very complicated game. I think one of the things that we'll do is definitely you and I are going to work on this chart to include in the show notes so people can be looking at it as we're talking about these games. Yeah, absolutely. And so this came out of a discussion that you and I had about how difficult games are to hack. Yes. So something that doesn't have many rules, the process of changing all of the rules for a system is easier if there aren't many rules. So if you were going to like deeply hack GURPS or Dungeons & Dragons, that's going to take you a little while because there are a lot of mechanics there. And something like Fate or Lasers and Feelings isn't going to take you as long because there are just fewer mechanics that you have to to tweak and alter to your new game. Right. Even if we take this to the logical extreme, consider sitting around a circle playing a pass-the-stick storytelling game. Uh, If you have sat with the same group of people handing around the stick and saying, we are playing a fantasy game, and then one night you decide, hey, we want to do sci-fi, no rules need to change. It's a very easy switch. But if you've been playing D&D and you've got level 17 barbarians and clerics and stuff like that, you suddenly have to reskin literally every piece of it. Yeah. So uh, complexity of rules or crunchiness, for those who are not familiar, uh, is something that increases the difficulty of hacking a game. Yeah, which is, I think, generally true. Um, we've had some arguments over whether or not it it is always true. Something like... If if a game has a long history and has a lot of mechanics to it, sometimes I think those can be crutches you can lean on to help you find places to tweak your rules. Whereas games that have fewer rules, because there isn't a lot of framework there, there isn't a lot for you to build on, so sometimes it can be harder to find a place to start when you're changing. Yeah, that's fair. It's worth also noting the difference between hacking something and really changing rules and reskinning something and just changing how something works. For example, if you have a big guy with a sword in fantasy, or you have a big guy with a vibroblade, or a big guy with a lightsaber, there's really no reason for him to work differently. Yeah, I mean, we talked about in the first episode that I was really obsessed with playing science fiction stuff in Dungeons & Dragons, because the Dungeon Master's Guide included stats for how to use a laser gun because functionally a laser gun, the difference between a laser gun and a, and like a bow and arrow is just the dice you roll and, and what it looks like in a story setting, but kind of the core mechanics of how Dungeons and Dragons does attacking and damage can still apply. Yeah, absolutely. I've had a player that decided that they wanted their cleric to be a guy with a magical shotgun that loaded his spells in and fired his spells from his magical shotgun. And that's just a matter of reskinning. We could have gone through a whole elaborate process, but there's no reason that can't just be changing the way that we describe the action. The rules can stay the same in that case, and that's totally okay. It doesn't make any difference on how the game itself is played. That's kind of where we started thinking about hacking games and where what what kinds of games that we wanted to change. So when we sat down and knew we wanted to make a game about X, Y, and Z, 
where would we go to look for a, a system that was already in place that would fit the needs we wanted for the or fit our needs right the story we wanted to the tell matter also of how many rules how crunchy a system is or how baked in the genre is is also ultimately a matter of preference you and i sit in very different places on the chart we can draw a little circle that says james area and draw a little circle that says brandon area <laughs> yeah so can you explain to the listeners what we mean by baked in genre i can certainly try it's a little bit of a weird concept to play with part of it is seeing it in action so what we're saying with baked in genre is we're saying when you look at the rules when the rules tell you what to do do they draw you towards a specific story so if it tells you when you roll a d20 in order to attack somebody how much does that drag the story and the example i'm going to give is actually something that came up in the last episode in the last game that I had of Masks. So Masks is a superhero teenage superhero game. It is delightfully fun. I love it. But one of the things that is a core part of the game that is sitting there on your character sheet looking at you the entire time is a thing that says when you share a vulnerability or a weakness with someone and then it has a mechanical thing that happens. What that means is when you are sitting there and you're looking at your sheet, you kind of have the reminder, you have the, the baked in idea that the theme of the game is going to include you potentially sitting down and talking to somebody and revealing your weaknesses. A lot of the ways that I think about it sometimes is if you're sitting at a table playing Dungeons and Dragons and you look down at your character sheet, that character sheet is going to describe the things that your character can mm -hmm. do. And if you're sitting at a table playing Masks, and you look down at your character sheet, that character sheet is going to tell you the kinds of things your character would do. Oh, that's great. I'm so glad that we're on a yeah. podcast together. You sound so smart. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and so it's because because Dungeons & Dragons is a, is, a, is a game that is designed to let you do a lot of different things, whereas Masks is a game that has that sort of genre built into it, and so it's always going to push you toward taking, like, angsty teen superhero action. Yeah, James, how long have we been playing games together? Uh, maybe, like, four years, five years? Probably through four or five years. How many times have we had a scene that was not in a mass game that was one character going to another character because they wanted support and comfort? I don't know, not a whole lot. Not a lot. I would say we're talking one hand's worth of things, because if you're playing games like D&D or Pathfinder or things like that, it doesn't tell you you need to do that. Yeah. But when you're in Masks, there is a move that specifically says, when you comfort or support somebody. There's a thing that says, when you tell your weaknesses to somebody, when you tell your vulnerabilities to somebody. And that is a place of wonderful genre bacon yeah. that means that any game of masks is going to include that and it also means that if you're someone who has never watched young justice or static shock or batman beyond or any of those annoying teen superhero shows uh, then annoying you mean delightful delightful teen superhero shows and if you if you're if you're totally unfamiliar with that genre the character sheet will always be pushing you toward playing a character from that genre and so that you could potentially play in a game with of a genre that you knew nothing about. 
Absolutely. And this is actually what happened with the group I was playing with yesterday, um, is I'm very familiar with teenage superheroes. Felipe is very familiar with teenage superheroes. Hi, Felipe. Uh, and her other two friends I don't think are. Um, but they were able to hit all of the appropriate beats because the game led them right down those things. And so to continue where this conversation kind of goes is that games that are low complexity, high genre bacon are my favorite, are your favorite, but are also some of the greatest games for new people to play because, well, because they have, they have fewer rules to learn and Mm -hmm. those rules that do exist push you towards playing in the genre. Yeah, absolutely. It essentially when games have high genre bacon, they are teaching you how to play that style of game. And they're rewarding you for playing that style of game if you're super familiar with RPGs. Mm-hmm. I should go ahead and give my uh, disclaimer that I love games with high genre bacon. Yeah. I, it's my favorite. And I fall a little bit on the other side of the table. Yeah, and I respect that. I like games that are a little more flexible. And when I express my respect for James, I get to mark potential. (laughs) And uh, I also remove a condition, which shows that I should be respecting James on this podcast. It's not that I dislike games that have a large amount of baked-in genre. It's that the same conditions that mean it's very easy for someone to sit down in a game of masks and play a teen superhero accurately mean that it's difficult for you to sit in a game of masks and play a political space opera that's a hundred percent true and so what you you see it is definitely a strength of those games and i do enjoy them i play them a lot or what is what is that strength is also a weakness in that it's a little bit less flexible yeah a hundred percent and it also means that the game will push itself in the direction the game wants to go. Um, going back to this Masks game, it was really, really sad. Um, n- the other times we've played the game, it hasn't been sad, but we realized after the fact that the players had chosen three playbooks, three kinds of characters, that all really benefit by being a sad story. What, uh, what playbooks did they pick? It was the Janus, which is all about managing a stressful life while being a superhero at the same time. The Transformed, which is all about being a mutant that everyone can tell you're a mutant minority and that people think that you're a freak, and it's, it's, it's the saddest of the playbooks. And it was the Bull, which is about being somebody God. torn. Yeah, you, so yeah. Like right now you can see how that would turn into such a sad game. Yeah. And and it was it was really it was sad and wonderful and amazing. But five of the playbooks are really focused towards being bright and cheerful and having the energy of youth. And five of the playbooks are really aimed towards having the angst and the depression and the difficulty of youth. Yeah. So if you have a team that is all the dark playbooks, that that can make for a rough game and i didn't want to run a rough game i wanted to run something that was light and fun yeah 
but the playbooks like the the baked in genre brought us to a specific place yeah i think masks i loved it it was a great game (laughs) yeah you just needed to throw a doomed in there and just would have been a perfect storm of depressed teenage angst as soon as we finished the game i explained what happened to the players and they were like okay so we need to get another player involved to play something nice and bright like a alien that wants to revel in the beauty of humanity or a beacon who wants to prove that he can be a superhero so i'm sorry that i interrupt a little bit i just wanted to highlight no, no with an a, example the yeah, uh, those are good difficulty examples. of bacon and so like i think it's 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 interesting because at all of the sort of extremes of the chart there are benefits and weaknesses and, Absolutely, and there are really good games in all of the sections. I'm looking a lot at there are there tend to be right now. I think there's a trend in games to be on the lower end of the complexity scale and the higher end of the genre bacon scale. Well, part of that is just that Apocalypse World has become such an enormously popular game to hack. Yeah, any Apocalypse World game, and I'm gonna just say like Urban Shadows, Monster Heart, Dungeon World. Uh, so many things, masks. Yeah, they are. Those are all going to have, at very least, decently high bacon, and at very most, I'm thrown by calling it bacon. I'm struggling. <laughs> so, I mean, but but at the same time, the reason why you have Urban Shadows and Masks as two different games, even though functionally their mechanics aren't that different, is because each has made an attempt to bake their genre into the mechanics that are there so they there is some overlap but you have like it's you have to have a bunch of different games you have to have what the power by the apocalypse uh sort of landscape looks like these days because you can't just take power by the apocalypse and play all the different genres because you wouldn't want to because what's great about each of those games is how much they do bake in the genre yeah, absolutely. One of the players said to me uh, after the game uh, that he really didn't like Urban Shadows and he really liked Masks. And it's a 2d6 system. It has a series of moves. You choose a playbook. And so kind of on a superficial level, it is the same game. Yeah. But when you start to delve into the complexities of how it bakes in genre, it gets very different. I think one of the things we had talked about as maybe being a potential future episode for this show is taking Urban Shadows and Masks and saying, what all these playbooks from Masks look like in Urban Shadows and vice versa? Yeah, making a dark fantasy superhero game and a... Teenage, oh, teenage monster game. We've kind of already got. Yeah, it's kind of what Monster uh, Hearts is. But with Monster Hearts, that is what Monster Hearts is. Um, but maybe something that plays more with identity and the mobility of the identity that Masks does. Yeah. Can you think of a game that is both high complexity and high genre bacon? Right now, I'm looking at this chart, and outside of chess, there isn't anything even in that quadrant. Looking at more of my notes, I had things like a good example of a high genre game that is low mm-hmm. complexity is Dread. 
Okay. Because it's low complexity. There's really just yeah. the one mechanic of the tower. But really, whatever you're going to tell in a game of Dread, it's going to be focused on that sort of tension building. Um, it doesn't have to be horror, but it, any so, anything that deals with suspense. I think we talked about this briefly in our technology episode, but just for anyone who missed that, Dread is a game where you play Jenga, and when the Jenga tower falls, a character dies. And so you have to draw bricks when you do things that are dangerous. It means that you're sitting there with very high tension, because we are now wired as human beings to see a Jenga tower and think to ourselves, that tower's gonna fall. Yeah. It's gonna fall. So that's kind of a low-complexity, high-genre game. Yeah. Um, on my chart, I have Fate as being a reasonably low-complexity, low-genre baked-in game. Because, I mean, you can kind of change... One of the things that I love about Fate is that as part of the game, the first thing you do is create the sort of baked-in stuff. You create stunts and aspects for your characters. But... yeah. I mean, one of the things that makes Fate really cool is that if anyone asks what is a way to play X genre, Fate is in the top three. Yeah. I've actually, on our big wheel of games that I would like to make, is a, I want to crush Fate. <laughs> we need like a, a sound effect of some kind. <laughs> yeah. I, um, I want to make, I want to take Fate and Apocalypse World and crush them together and see if you can't make you basically use fate as a as a base system for generating apocalypse world games on the fly the global universal po powered by the apocalypse world system yeah i mean because that's kind of what fate does with its with its yeah Goobitzas. so so i don't know if that's possible but we might come back to that you know i actually saw at some point we'll have to link it in the show notes cuz i can't remember the name of it but something, I think it was called Apocalypse World Light or something like that, that was very much based on just having the basic moves. I think what makes Apocalypse World sing is the fact that, that the playbooks have so much genre in them. I'm not sure if it would work as well if you did something like the big guy. The guy who talks to people. I mean, it might work. Who knows? D&D &D works, and that's yeah. what they essentially do. Would it have the same charm? Like, what? what's... Yeah. People go to Powered by the Apocalypse games for that sort of... Spirit. Spirit, yeah. Yeah, I got this. The, the genre bacon. Yeah, the genre bacon. The genre egg, cheese, and bacon. Yeah. For Sandwich. breakfast. Sandwich. And then... By the Apocalypse. <laughs> Sandwich by... Sandwich Sandwiched by the Apocalypse. <laughs> Um, Sandwiched by the apocalypse sounds like one of the worst situations to be in. Yeah. And then... Oh, man, there's all these zombies, and I know that a couple of weeks from now we're going to be in Waterworld. <laughs> and then... <laughs> so completing the last quadrant of the game of the chart, you have low-genre, high-complexity games, which is kind GURPS. of... GURPS! Yeah, which is where GURPS lives, which is where D&D &D lives, which is where, I guess, Monopoly lives. Um... <laughs> And so those are, I mean, that's probably where a lot of war games live. Um, yeah. Yeah. And and there's nothing wrong with that, even though that isn't one of the quadrants that we love. Um, no, but there are things about that quadrant that are, that are great. They're, yeah, it, and I was actually right about to say that, that 
that is one of the easiest to reskin quadrants. Because you just, I mean, think of those GURPS books. Mo so GURPS is the Global Universal Role-Playing System. It came out in, I think, the 80s, and it was real focused on being able to play anything. And what it does is it has hun literally hundreds of source books. Um, so you have things like uh, GURPS Aliens, GURPS Aztecs, GURPS Future Space Opera. There is GURPS Miskatonic University. There is GURPS Fantastical University that combines all of the multiverse. Like, it gets weird. But the way that it works is it has just tons of rules, and it doesn't bake in a lot of genre into it. So it's very easy to reskin. Yeah. So one of the things that I do a lot is stare at this chart and think, where are the places that games live that are the easiest to hack? Mm, and yeah. generally, I think like low genre well i generally think that high genre high complexity games are some of the hardest to hack because Definitely. there are so, so many i mean we can't really think of any games that fit that genre but maybe that's <laughs> why there there are a few games well, there yeah. to begin with i mean you, okay you, you know have what to have i just i think i just came up with one red markets by caleb stokes okay was recently uh featured on one shot and he's been doing a big podcast circuit and talking to all sorts of different people um but it's a very high complexity game it has a lot of rules it has a lot of very in-depth systems and it's also very much based on negotiation and being a commercial thing because it's about being it's about hunting vampires in a dystopian uh capitalistic system yeah i would also add now that i'm thinking about it 7c is probably up in that quadrant Oh yeah, especially that C has a decent amount of bacon. Especially the second uh, edition, as they're starting to trickle out the playbooks or uh, not playbooks, as they're starting to trickle out the rulebooks for that. Um, especially the damage system, I love because it really feels like swashbuckling. With that system, the more messed up you get, the more powerful you get. Essentially, yeah, it's a there's a there's kind of a curve. You start off taking damage, and damage doesn't like light damage doesn't really affect you too much. And then at some point, you become like enraged, and the the strength and the damage gives you power. But then you suddenly like drop off because you're almost dead. Right, it's the last ten minutes of the Princess Bride. Yeah, Hello, my exactly. name is Inigo Montoya, or maybe I'm not strong enough to lift this sword. Mm -hmm. uh, and that is very baked in. And if you took that and you said, hey, let's do Star Trek with that, that's not how death works in Star Trek. <laughs> yeah, no. I think that honestly, the more bake in there is and the more complexity there is, the harder it's going to be to hack it. Yeah. So I don't, I don't know if it's a, a straight linear thing of like, of, uh, there's, if there's a, just like a slope line from high complex high genre down as being the hardest down to low genre low complexity being the easiest because i feel like low complexity high genre is also pretty easy i would say that high complexity low genre is actually the easier to do because then you're talking dnd &D. and yeah, i could okay. run dnd &D as a sci-fi game yeah like right now low low complexity low genre is probably the easiest yes um to hack and then low genre high complexity might be next and then 
low complexity, high genre, and then high complexity, high genre being the worst. Yeah, that's how I would put them personally. Um, and so I haven't necessarily stuck with that. And how difficult it is isn't necessarily how fulfilling it is. Sure. Um, I think you'd have a very hard time, for example, kickstarting or selling something that is a fate hack that is just a setting. Yeah, which is why most... Or maybe not. Maybe not. I have no idea. Everything is yeah, powered by the apocalypse. But, a lot, but I do definitely see a lot more powered by the apocalypse kickstarters or books being released for sale, whereas a lot more fate books tend to be uh, just people publish things. Yeah, I think that what it comes down to in a big way is how baked in the setting is means that your setting is more important for it as a published product. Yeah. I mean, if someone released a 7C hack that was a real total conversion to something else, to sci-fi or space opera, I, yeah. would, I would just know that that person had put in so much time because there was just there are just so many rules to that game and that it, it because the the genre is so baked in to a game yeah. like that that they would have yeah, had to do that, a lot of work. Yeah, and I'm not going to do that work. Yeah. Um but if I'm looking at I feel like I'm making enemies among our tiny little wonderful community that I no, love so I, much. But if I were looking at a Kickstarter that was like, "Hey, here's a way to turn fate into fate" dragon noir that I would say okay so you wrote a set in I, back I can write a set in yeah I'm not throwing my money at it you're always just gonna have less content for low genre low complexity games because right. there's just less there so and that doesn't mean that it isn't fantastic I mean uh, millennial apartment hunters is a very easy game uh, genre isn't really baked in. Uh, you could pretty easily convert it to a different system, but it's a fun little game. I recommend you check it out. Yeah. Um, and it's got a lot of value. Uh, so don't think of complexity of hacking or complexity of playing with it is necessarily a show of how valuable something is. But I think that if you make a change to something that has a lot of genre bacon then you're creating something that potentially someone else would not be able to sit down and create in that moment. Yeah. If I had a book that was D&D, but sci-fi noir dragons, then I could run sci-fi noir dragons in D&D. But if I had a group that wanted to play sci-fi noir dragons and all I had was D&D rules, I could reskin it in a two and a half minutes yeah to make it all work maybe a little longer <laughs> but yeah the fact that they're dragons maybe sure. makes a difference but like, but but like, <laughs> that was a bad example but like you and i could sit down right now and pump out probably a hundred lasers and feelings uh hacks in the next five minutes because there's just not oh, yeah. that many rules to change yeah oh, definitely so i think we're kind of drawing towards the end of this discussion and we're not trying to put any sort of value judgments on any of these four quadrants or any of these kinds of games. Yeah, certainly not. Because, I mean, really, we're looking at this and saying, James, you like low genre, low complexity. Yeah. And I am okay with low genre, low complexity. Um, but it's not my cup of tea. 
and we have all the different people that are playing different kinds of games if a game has baked in genre i love it i automatically love it more yeah uh i don't care how many rules there are i will learn the rules i want the game that pushes the genre but that isn't for everybody and that's totally okay and that's awesome and that's why everyone should be making games yeah i think also that to some extent thinking about games this way is helpful for people who are looking to hack a game or to hack a story in that if I was going to sit down, I mean, and this is the thing I've done, if I'm looking to do a Star Trek game or to do like a MechWarrior game, something with uh, big robots, I want that to feel clunky, I want it to feel difficult, I want to feel like there are a lot of little knobs I can and switches to flip, Um, so I'm going to want to find a game to start with that is more complex because then that complexity will reinforce and bake in some of the genre um which kind of leads me to another thing i was just thinking about which is that part of hacking a game can be moving it from one quadrant to another because you could take fate as a base and i mean i think i think dungeon world is a great example of this dungeon world takes apocalypse world which is kind of a like mid to lower complexity game and moves it a little higher towards dungeons and dragons in terms of complexity and we actually mentioned john harper earlier who wrote uh world of dungeon and this is an even greater example that we take apocalypse world we make it more complex to make it dungeon world and then he creates world of dungeon which is explicitly if dungeon world was written in the 1970s and brings it back to be in a yeah. really low rule <laughs> game. Funny. I love World of Dungeon. It's great. I think that using the chart to sort of think and using that scale to think about games uh, really can inform where you should start thinking about a game and sort of framing your brain to approach hacking a game. If you're sitting down to hack an Apocalypse World game, you know that it's there aren't as many rules, but you're going to spend more time thinking about story. But if you're going to hack Dungeons and Dragons, there's a little bit less story, and you're going to know, and you know, you're going to have to think more about the mechanics. A hundred percent. Once you get the idea of the feeling of your game, that tells you what quadrant you're in, what kind of game you might want to hack, or where you might want to start. When I was deciding that I wanted to make Telenovela World or Pasión de los Pasiones, I made the conscious decision that I wanted something that the game brought genre that the game dragged you in that direction. That was very important to me. And so I was looking at the possibilities and fate wasn't an option and Dungeons and Dragons isn't an option. I mean, obviously Dungeons and Dragons isn't an option because you're not in a telenovela going into a mansion and killing everyone in it and taking their stuff. (laughs) I want to play that game now. I want to watch that telenovela now. But it just kind of tells you where to put your foot down first. Yeah. And uh, yeah, yeah. Um, and so that's so it's a thing that we talk about a lot. We talk about games that have baked in genre versus not, and games that are complex versus not complex. And I was realizing, and so kind of bringing this back to what my friend Ryan was saying was that that's really intuitive to Brandon and I because we've been talking about games this way for a while. And so we wanted to sort of give you, the listener, insight into the madness that is the way that Brandon and I think about games, which is hopefully why you're listening to this podcast. So definitely reach out to us and let us know where you think different games uh, fit on our chart. 
our list was clearly not exhaustive. We just tried to cover a lot of the games that we talk about frequently to give you some some sort of cornerstones of where other games might fit. The easiest way to reach out to us and get a, and get a hold of us is probably on Twitter. You can reach us both together at at Stop Hack and Roll, or you can reach me specifically, James, at at and the meltdowns and you can reach me specifically at dr captain cobalt you can find more information about the show episodes and show notes at stophackandroll.com and you can email us individually at our names at stophackandroll.com so james at stophackandroll.com and brandon at stophackandroll.com We'd love to hear from the community anybody who has thoughts or feelings on any of it just let us know because we want to know what you're thinking so we can know what to talk about. And thank you, Ryan, for giving us some of that feedback that kind of guided us on this episode. Yeah, and we're going to continue trying to sort of cover the bases of the way that Brandon and I think about games so that going forward we can kind of, again, build that vocabulary of of game hacking uh, so that we can be clear about the way we think about games and that you can help us think about games in new ways and that you can think about games in the way we think about them and uh just sort of have fun and hack games whether you are hacking or skinning or frying up some genre bacon don't forget Mm -mm. to stop hack and roll Do you think there's actually people that care about how we think about games? Uh, That seems unlikely.